Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Well, it is good to see all of you. If you have a Bible, please let me invite you to open up with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, chapter 1, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. If you are uh, a visitor with us, there should be a black hardback underneath one of the seats around you that you can open up to uh, and join us, Ecclesiastes 1. It's a small little book, not super popular, tucked away in the Old Testament, and so it should be on page number 553 if you need help navigating there, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We started a new sermon series going through the book of Ecclesiastes last week. We like to do this here at the church pick a book and kind of work our way through it systematically over the course of a few weeks. And, uh, you know, we're all hyped up now. Those past couple songs got us up, and now it's Ecclesiastes' job to bring us back down, okay? Very, very depressing book, uh, very Debbie Downer. Um, And so want to get you caught up if you weren't able to be here with us last week uh, as we dive into Ecclesiastes this morning. A couple words I would like to teach you, and then let's hone on the main message of Ecclesiastes, and we'll be ready to rock and roll this morning. So if you have your Bible open, um, look at verse 2 of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. In verse 2 and 3, we get a summary of the message of the entire book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, meaningless, meaningless, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is Vanity, two words, say it with me. Havel, say Havel. Havel is the Hebrew word here for vanity. Uh, it means vapor or mist. Um, it's translated sometimes as meaningless or absurd. Um, then the second word is Kohelet. Say Kohelet with me. Kohelet. This is the Hebrew word for preacher. Uh, in, in verse 2. This is the author of most of Ecclesiastes. These are our, our sermons, lessons, teachings that he has given and compiled. At the beginning of Ecclesiastes, though, we meet the narrator, and he summarizes Coalette's message to us. His message is that everything, everything you've ever experienced or will ever experience, everything around you in this entire world is meaningless. It has no meaning at all. It's all Havel. He leaves no exceptions. There's not an asterisk. Everything is Havel. And in case you're wondering, this is not like the beginning statement, and he doesn't work his way into like a more progressive, beautiful stance by the end of the book. This is it, okay? He's going to, for 12 chapters, just slam home meaningless, meaningless, vanity, vanity, Havel, Havel, over and over and over and over again. In verse 3, we get a sense for why this man is so troubled, okay? Why he needs a hug and some therapy. In verse 3, he asks, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And this is a rhetorical question. For him, the answer is nothing. And the key terms to, to see here are gain. This is an economic term. He's talking about profit or surplus, And his question is, at the end of life, at the end of the day, all the things that we keep ourselves busy with as human beings, what will be left over? What will be surplus from that? Will we have anything that's real to show for it? And his answer is very firm. It's no. And the finality of his answer comes from the fact that he says, one day, no matter who you are, no matter what you experience now, you're all going to die. Right? We'll all go to the same place. And then he says, to make it even more chipper, he says, and everyone will forget you. 
right? I mean, you're 60 years away from your own family forgetting who you are, forgetting your name. Um, you'll live and you'll die and you'll be buried and forgotten like everybody else and you'll have nothing to show for it. Life is like Groundhog Day. It's this, it's this endless treadmill that we run and we're here for a little bit and then we're gone. So now you're caught up, okay? We're in Ecclesiastes. We'll, we'll dive into chapter 2 this morning, but before we get there, I want to ask you, who here remembers Fire Festival? A handful of us. It's fire with a Y because it's cool. Fire Festival. Um, it's come back into the kind of conversation and pop culture because of a couple documentaries that have recently come out about it. If you're unaware, it was this luxury music festival that was put together and built um, to take place on a private island in the Bahamas um, last April, last May. Or, I'm sorry, 2017, April, May of 2017. And what they had done was they had come up with this grand idea to basically throw the biggest and best party this generation has ever seen. It was being billed as like the millennial Woodstock, right? Like this would be the event that changed everyone's lives who attended and that the whole rest of the world would be talking about for years and years and years to come. And so there was a lot of hype built up around the fire Festival. They had one of the most intense and, and, and well-executed social media campaigns um, that we've seen in the, the modern era. They had paid 100 uh, of the highest social influencers um, to, to leak out details uh, and to post on their accounts about the fire Festival. And so we're talking about like Kendall Jenner, right? Um, people, I mean, people high up there, millions and millions of followers. And, and so if you remember back then, it had this huge buzz around it. Everyone was talking about fire Festival. It was supposed to be held on an island, private island, that was supposedly given to the guy founding this festival that was once Pablo Escobar's island. Uh, they had, previous to the festival itself, gotten 10 or 20 supermodels and gone to the island and filmed them partying for a couple of weeks to get like some promo footage. Um, and it was viral. I mean, it was going everywhere. And if you remember back from this time, you'll remember that um, this festival, which was supposed to have all the best artists, all the celebrities, all the richest, the most famous people, people, including kids, were dropping tens of thousands of dollars on tickets there, on private planes, on accommodations and other events while they were there. What you might remember from this, what really stands out to me, besides the documentary from my own memory, is the weekend it was supposed to go down. Because everyone was kind of like, okay, let's live vicariously. All right, as they're there and we're experiencing FOMO, let's see some videos, let's see what's happening at this festival. And instead what we got was much better than we could have ever imagined. We got a bunch of videos of these super rich people basically orphaned on an island in the middle of nowhere in the Bahamas. And the festival was not happening and the music acts were not there. And they were living in hurricane tents given out to hurricane survivors in previous years um, that had already been soaked in rain that had come right before the festival. And so their mattresses were soaking wet. They were fighting over food um, to get their hands on it. What they were serving was cheese sandwiches, uh, just two pieces of bread and a a slice of cheese. Pillows became a scarce resource. Um, And you had all of these really rich, uh, some really famous people posting these videos like, help. This is not turning out the way it's supposed to be. And for a lot of people, there's a lot of satisfaction in that. Kind of like, you know, the, you don't want to admit it, but the little sense of like smug satisfaction you get when you see someone who's really successful or really rich have to kind of eat it, right? Have to kind of live like everyone else. And so a lot of millennial jokes flew out of this very easily, right? A lot of uh, 
trust fund baby jokes as these, these kids that spend all this money. Um, what we're going to find in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 is that Colette, the, the author here, what he's going to basically tell us is that he threw fire festival. He threw it and he did it well and he did it over and over and over again and he made it bigger and bigger and bigger every time. But here's his conclusion. He's going to say, but at the end of the day, what I and my attendees had left over from it is the exact same that the trust fund kids, millennials on that island had as they were standing there with nothing to hold, no shelter, no food, no transportation. You can say it was, it was meaningless. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We were introduced at the very end of chapter 1 to Coalette's project where he says he's going to go try to experience everything there is to experience and report back on it. And he now begins this process, this experiment. I said in my heart, verse 1, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. What I love about Coalette is he's never going to lead you on, okay? He's never going to give you enough space to be like, okay, maybe this works out for him. Uh, before he even tells you about the experiment, he's like, just so you know, it was Havel. It was meaningless. It was vanity. It was nothing. But here's what he's going to do. He's going to go test pleasure. The, the word pleasure here, because of, it has like, we're post-Puritan, right, era. It has a little bit of a negative connotation. It doesn't have that in the Hebrew. Maybe we can think of it just as like joy. Basically, he, he said to himself, look, with my resources available to me as king of Israel, I'm going to go hunt down and experience every source of joy that there is in the world. And I'm going to experience as much of it, as intensely as I can, and look to see if there's even a bit of meaning there even a bit of substance. So in verse 2, he says, I said of laughter, it's mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched my heart, how to cheer my body with wine. Here his experiment begins. With my heart still guiding me with wisdom. He's going to say, even no matter how crazy this gets, in the back of my mind, I still had it together. I was still trying to observe what, what is happening, what kind of life does this produce, and how to lay hold on folly, so I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. You see some coalette happening there, right? What's good for human beings to do with the few days that they have? With your cute little lives, what could you find that might uh, be good for you? He says, I made great works. In verse 4, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than anyone who had come before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man." Colette's saying, you downloaded the Coldplay album, right? I hired Coldplay. They live in my mansions. I got the singers. I got the comedians. I got the celebrities. Verse 9, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept from my heart no joy, no pleasure, and all of my toil. And this was my reward for all of my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was havel, all was vanity, all was meaningless. 
a striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained, no surplus from any of this under the sun. So you, you see here in Coalette's experiment, kind of a progression of life. I think in some people's lives, you can kind of see this progression go along. So, so Coalette starts, and he says, I'm going to pursue joy. I'm going to really go for this. And he starts where it might be logical for some of us else to start. He goes, look at the vineyards. Look at the wine. And when the people drink the wine, they giggle. They look like they're having a good time. And so I'm going to drink wine. And he drinks the wine. He drinks the best wine. He grows the best vineyards. He, he does it being modest and consuming in moderation. And then he, he does it all out. He parties. And he says from all of this partying, from all of this pleasure, there was, there was no gain. There's no meaning there. They'll say, yeah, I giggled. There's maybe some temporary joy there. There's no surplus. There's nothing to be held over afterwards. We've said Ecclesiastes might have been written on a Monday, as he's like getting up to start doing all this stuff over again. Uh, I think you could also see Ecclesiastes as being written the day after, like the day after a big party, the day after this big experience or this event. I think we've all maybe experienced this, where there's some big event coming, some big experience, and we have a lot of expectations for it, and it happens. And, and even if it goes well, or even if it doesn't go well, the next morning we wake up, and there's a little bit of a letdown. It's back to our regular, everyday lives. It didn't really follow through on all the things we hoped it might um, bear weight for us in our, our pursuit of meaning. Um, event planners, I'm told, this is very common for them to experience. They'll spend six months planning this event. And even if it all goes perfectly, everyone has a great time, it accomplishes all of its purposes, they wake up the next morning, and there's nothing for them to hold. Right? All of their work, all their toil, it happened. And the world's not changed. Everything's basically the same as it was beforehand. And they get on the treadmill again for another six months for the next event, on and on and on. So he starts with wine. He starts by, by partying. Um, and then like a lot of people, he moves on. He progresses in life. He, he then um, really leans into his work. It's, then I decided, okay, enough partying. I've done the drinking thing. I've done the club scene for long enough. What if I really poured myself into my work? What if I committed to, to building stuff, to, to seeing beauty, to, to leaving a, a lasting legacy on this earth? And so as the king, he, he gives us this list of accomplishments, what he's done. He says, I made great works, the greatest. I, I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. Part of what Colette is doing here is he's trying to convince you that he did more than you ever can. The, the hope of Ecclesiastes is that you won't also try to run this experiment, right? You're like, oh, I see. Don't keep anything that you see from yourself. Do everything you desire. Sounds like a good experiment, right? I might run this for a couple months, a couple years. Colette's trying to say, no, 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 don't run it. And one of the reasons you shouldn't run it is because it's not even going to hold up to what I was able to experience. So, so you build your perfect house, and you're, you're hoping that that's going to give some shape and meaning to your life. And he says, not only will it not, but it's not, I mean, it's, it's pathetic in comparison to my house's. Your three-story Sugarland nice house, right, is like half of one of my bathrooms in Israel. It's cute, but it's, it's not the same. He says, I built houses for myself. He'll even say, I built houses for all my wives, concubines, about 700 of them. 
He'll say, look, I, I planted national forests. I built gardens. Your backyard garden, he says, again, it's cool. But I went, I went for the whole thing. I did it. I experienced it. I went further than you can, and I came back with nothing. He says, I bought male and female slaves. I had slaves who were born in my house. So he goes through this period of time where he does nothing for himself. He wakes up, they bathe him, feed him grapes, give him some wine. They bring in the music, they bring in the comedians, they bring in the girls. He says, I, I, I was fed hand and toe. I had everything done for me that I could do. And it came back with nothing. I had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I had silver, gold, the treasures of all kinds of kings, and then many concubines, the lights of the sons of man. The progression you can kind of see is he goes from partying to work to luxury and wealth. You can see, I think, in a lot of people's lives, this kind of progression. At a young age, you're going around and you're partying, and then slowly but surely you settle down and you commit to kind of doing something with your life. And then once you've experienced that that work and that toil, then you settle back down and you experience and enjoy the fruit of your labor, the wealth that you've built up. He's saying, this is what I, I did. This is the, the lifestyle I pursued. This is what I experienced. Colette's trying to say, every fantasy that you run in your mind about what might make life better for you, I've already been there, and it doesn't. So if only I had a new house, if only I had more money, if only I was able to do this or get this accomplished, if only I was able to get this new wife, call it saying, look, I ran out of fantasies with females. I was, I was not lacking a hair color, an eye color, a body shape. Any sort of thing you might imagine or think might be something for you. He said, I was there and I did it. And it all came back as Havel for me. There's a couple of interesting things uh, about this passage, the first 12 verses here. One is that um, Coelette, by listing off his kingly accomplishments, is actually participating in a very common genre of the ancient Near Eastern world. It's called a, a royal testament where they list off their accomplishments. Um, and one of the reasons kings did this back in the ancient world is so that they would achieve some sort of immortality. So their legacy would go on, right? So they could deal with this issue of death and what it all means because of death. Note that Coelette here does this. He lists off all his kingly accomplishments, but he does it so he can deconstruct the whole idea. Right? I mean, he lists them all out and then says, and what really do I have or anyone has after all of this? There's nothing. There's, there's not much there. I'm not going to be remembered. Nothing that happens here is going to counter those results. Now, importantly, in, in, in verse 10 and 11, um, Colette seems to suggest, and I think he does, that he did find some joy in these activities. So when he was drinking the wine, he had a good time. And when he was working, he found some joy in his work and getting things done and being impressive. And when he was laying back and enjoying his luxury, he, he had some joy in that. But what he's going to say is that joy is temporary. It doesn't solve the real problem for me, which is there's no surplus after death. There's no profit after death. He says, sure, we might find here and there, every now and then, some temporary, some temporary joy. But at the end of the day, to the one who has a lot of money, the one who has no money, to the one who has all the women, the one who has none of the women, they go to the same place. And they take with them the same amount, and they leave 
everything behind to be forgotten about. For Colette, this is what really bothers him, is that these temporary joys are what we have to resign ourselves to. They're a portion. They're a lot. But they're not any sort of gain. They have no meaning. They have no lasting significance. We can keep reading verse 12. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Here again, he's kind of getting up. He's like, okay, well, I did determine that it's better to be wise than to be foolish. There was some benefit to this. And he goes, but the same thing happens to both of us. We both go to the same place. I said in my heart, verse 15, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been so very wise? I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of of the fool, there's no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is hevel. All is vanity meaningless. A striving after the wind. The progression continues now. He's gone from partying to working to enjoying his wealth. And now he hits the depressive stage. He's gone through all of it. And he ends up by saying what? In verse 17, I hated life. It was all grievous to me. It was all so meaningless and striving after the wind. And he is saddened that this is the case. He's stuck in this rut, in this treadmill that he calls life. What he says before that in this passage basically is, you might have your life more figured out than other people. You might experience more joy than other people. You might be more impressive than other people. You might have more wealth than other people. So you might be able to look around you and be like, okay, I've got my stuff together a whole lot more than that family down at the end of the street. That family, right? And you might go, okay, you know, maybe I'm not the greatest. Maybe I'm no king, but I've got my life together way more than the guy who's sitting in prison right now on murder charges. And Colette's going to say, but, but here's the deal. Where is he going and where are you going? The same place, six feet under. And what is he taking with him and what are you taking with him? It's just the same things, nothing. He says, how is he going to be remembered and how are you going to be remembered? He says, at all, none at all. Your family's going to forget you. He says, sure, maybe if I'm, I'm stepping back and being objective, wisdom is better than foolishness. But at the end of the day, it still doesn't solve, it doesn't meet this problem of death. Even the temporary joys we have right now, even the little advantage there might be to being wise instead of foolish, he says, are, are equalized by the universality of death. Now, he pursues perhaps one way out of this. What if we were able to leave behind stuff to our children or to the people we wanted to leave behind it to? Verse 18, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity, So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill 
must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even the night his heart does not rest. This also is Havel. He says that even the prospect of leaving something behind, he says, even this drives me to concurring, concluding that this is all a meaningless process. He says, you might leave it behind to someone wise who'll do with it things you think should be done with it. Or you might leave it behind to something foolish, someone foolish who's going to waste it all away. He doesn't deserve any of it. I think about the, the fire festival again and, and a lot of these really young kids with just tens of thousands of dollars to throw away. I imagine that at least maybe perhaps some of their parents or grandparents or wherever this wealth is coming from, right, would maybe be like, okay, that's not really what I wanted you to do with all the money. Okay, just stay home, enjoy yourself, and then go on these big luxury experiences. Um, as my parents get older, it's interesting uh, because they've done well for themselves and, and they've got a will in place. And every year, uh, the adult children go with them and we review the will. We know exactly what's going to happen. And it's interesting to me how much they care about what will happen to their things after they die. It makes sense. You know, they've worked really hard on it. And my parents aren't like careless people. They have very specific things they want to have happen with that money, ways for it to impact their family and the world, and very specific things they don't want to have happen for that money. And so they make this plan in place. And Colette's saying, no matter what plan you make, no matter what will you form, you have no control over all of the things you built, over all the things you worked for. What surplus do you have? For Colette, I think what really frustrates him is not so much it's just like a 50-50 coin flip. Maybe they'll use it well. Maybe they use it not well. It's that you can't know how it will be used. I think for him, the, the inability to even know is part of the frustration he has with the way the world works. I can't even get meaning now from knowing what I'll leave behind because I don't know what it will do. I don't know how it will be used. I don't know if it will be stolen. I don't know if it will be wasted away. It gives me nothing. I have no surplus as I continue on. And then we get to the very end of this chapter, verse 24 to 26, where we get our first carpe diem passage. It's our first ray of sunshine in Ecclesiastes, where we think, okay, this guy, he might be, he might be turning a corner. And we're going to be tempted to read this with the like Dead Poet Society in the back of our mind, right? Seize the day. But we've got to remember that even at the end of the Carpe Diem passages, he concludes it's Havel. At best, these positive statements we see from him are, are resignations. We're saying this is all that there is. This is all we have to hold on to. Verse 24, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. We'll see this again throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. There's nothing better. You, you've got nothing more in life for you to look for, to seek after. Just enjoy what you're eating. Enjoy what you're drinking. And try to enjoy the toil that is in front of you. The work that you've been given to do. This also, he says, I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? 
For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Different translations, they'll, they'll translate that one who pleases God and sinner differently. I think the ESV does it right with the one who pleases God. But I think you've got to take out that moral connotation of sinners here. Um, I think what Colette is saying is, for whatever reason, God decides to show pleasure on some people and decides to not show that same pleasure on other people. That's just life, right? Some people are blessed. Some people seem to not be blessed. And it's not necessarily because of something you did. Good people can have bad things happen. Bad people can have good things happen. But this is just the lot in life. Some people find pleasure in God's eyes and they get this stuff. They can find more joy than others. Some people don't and it gets left behind and goes to them. He says, all of this though is vanity. At this life, with what is happening, we have nothing better to do than to eat and to drink and to find enjoyment in his toil. Now, what do we do with this? Where do we go from Ecclesiastes chapter 2? I think there's two ways that you and I are invited to lean in and to evaluate and bring this into our lives. The first way is I think we need to really lean in and understand and, and, and take uh, trustingly the message of Kohelet. Um, the issue for a lot of us, I think, is that because we haven't experienced the endless limits of what wealth can give, because we haven't experienced the endless limits of what we can do as productive workers, as human beings, because we haven't experienced all the parties there are to go to, we always hold out this little bit of hope. It'll be next. If I can just do it more, if I can just do it bigger, if I can just experience it more intensely, I can get there. So we, we look at Colette and we go, okay, you partied, but did you party? I mean, me and my friends, we go crazy. Did you, did you really experience that? We go, okay, you had these houses, but I mean, did you have these modern luxury houses where you can just speak and the thermostat changes and doors open and close and all of this stuff? Okay, you, yeah, you worked and you built forests and stuff, but did you build a hedge fund? Did you ever day trade the stocks? And Coalette is, is begging with us to go, look, you don't have to run that race. I've been there, I've done it, and I can tell you what's there, and what's there is emptiness, it's vapor. He says, all I got from all of that was temporary moments of joy, but nothing that fills that gap created by death. And so I think there is some truth to be had here. I think there is some um, knowledge to be gleaned from Kohelet to be able to jump off of the treadmill and trust his wisdom, trust his experience. And then I think also we, as Christians, have to read Ecclesiastes in light of the resurrection. I mentioned last week that perhaps what would have changed the equation for Coalette was the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection promised to his people. Coalette is not working with the holistic view of the afterlife. It's not there for the most part in the Old Testament at all. There are hints every now and then. There are a couple places where it comes up real explicitly. But for the most part, the Old Testament ends by going into a tunnel with no real developed view of the afterlife. And then when that tunnel emerges and the New Testament begins, in the first century, a few centuries have passed, and it comes out, and they've got this belief in the afterlife. They have this very firm belief in the resurrection. 
And if we're not familiar with scripture, we're not familiar with the history, that can kind of confuse us. Okay, why is it not there, there, and all of a sudden it shows up there? It's because they, they came on to these beliefs in that time period. So by the time the New Testament shows up, that belief is there. And I said, I think it's the resurrection of Jesus. It's death itself being interrupted. That cycle of death, that treadmill of death, it's that being interrupted and it's life being given back to people for eternity that truly solves Kohelet's problem. That there's nothing here that gives meaning because at the end of the day we die and are forgotten. Well, what if because of Jesus, at the end of the day, you die, but there's more day to come. And at the truly end of the day, you resurrect. You're alive again. And you experience eternity. I think this is a game changer for Coalette. I think Ecclesiastes is pushing us to try to evaluate his claims in light of what we know to be true because of Jesus. What could make these things uh, meaningful in the time being? I think it is the hope that we have in the resurrection, and in particular, the mission we have because of Jesus and his kingdom. All Christians, not just pastors, youth pastors, have been given a mission by Jesus to go and spread the good news, to go and be ambassadors for Christ, to go and work and pray and live for the kingdom of God to come more on earth as it is in heaven. And it's when we take that mission very seriously, not just you know on a mission trip, but at our workplaces. When we take that mission seriously at the parties, when we take that mission seriously when we're enjoying the wealth that we have, we take that mission seriously when we're even depressed and, and coming to the end of our ropes. It's that mission, I think, that adds this eternal value to the things we are tasked with doing right now that allow us to take more from it than just temporary pleasure, but to find actual substance, surplus, or profit that Colette is so vexed trying to look for. There's an interesting verse in the New Testament at the very end of 1 Corinthians 15. The whole chapter, Paul's been arguing for the resurrection of the dead. He's been answering questions that the Corinthians have about it. Um, what's it going to be like? How's it going to happen? Um, it's been very theological. And then at the very end of the chapter, he concludes with a concept that hasn't really been there in the chapter, and it's a little surprising. Um, it ends like this. Therefore, conclusion, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now hopefully you, you can on your own pick up the echoes of Ecclesiastes there. Paul is saying, because of the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection to come, you can keep working. You can know that everything you do for Christ isn't in vain. It's not a vapor. It's not a mist. It will have an eternal impact, both for you and for those who receive it. In the resurrection to come, your fruit will still be there. Your prophet will be waiting for you. In light of the resurrection, the equation changes. It's the mission of the kingdom, I think, that allows us to truly enjoy God's gifts now and be able to trust that they have real meaning for us. If we're just eating and drinking, then with Colette, we can say, enjoy it. If you've got good fruit in front of you, yeah, go at it. If you've got good drink, go at it. 
If your work's fulfilling, go at it. But that's probably all you're going to get. But if we have the resurrection and the mission of the kingdom in front of us, then eating and drinking might go from something that just gives us a little bit of pleasure in the moment to something that maybe pays off for eternity. What would happen if eating and drinking became the table fellowship of Jesus? In the Gospels, Jesus ministers at a table by eating and drinking. And it transforms these gifts. It's not just that momentary pleasure from eating and drinking. It's this table being transformed into something that will last for eternity, something that will see itself through beyond the resurrection that is to come. What if the the work that we have, that we're doing, whether it is a ministerial work or or secular work, whether it is teaching, whether it is real estate, whether it is um, working for Uber, whatever it might be, what if that work wasn't just work? What if it found a place in your life in the mission of the kingdom and the hope that you have for the resurrection that is to come? Then perhaps you could, at the end of the day, be confident that it's, it's not in vain. Perhaps the perspective of the resurrection gives the lens by which we can see and grasp true meaning in the here and the now. There's something that happens when you put too much pressure on the present. If you put too much pressure, if you put all your expectations, if all your chips are in the middle of the table on the experience to come, on whatever event it is that you're about to do, whatever it is you're about to enjoy, what we find is that that experience, that, that situation, it can never hold up, it can never bear the weight of those expectations. It crumbles. There's no fire festival. Or, or, or no house, or no move, or vacation, right? It's going to hold up your quest for meaning. It might give you a little bit, but then it will disappear like all Havel disappears. But what if that could change? What if that work becomes something different? What if, because of our future orientation with the resurrection, the present doesn't have as much expectation on it? I can give you an example from my own life. Uh, when I get invited to go and preach somewhere, say there's a retreat happening, what I've found is, psychologically for me, it may not be true for everybody, is I can't put too much pressure and expectations on that first sermon of the weekend. So you get in Friday night. Usually I'm getting in that day. If it's like a youth retreat, those kids are hyped up on Mountain Dew, past their bedtime in a new place. There's a lot of weird variables going on, Right? And that first night, it's very likely you might not hit it out of the park for a lot of reasons. And if, 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 if you're building everything, all those expectations are on that one sermon, then you know, you're going to go depressed. You're going to go to bed depressed, right? You're going to feel like it, you blew it. That moment came and passed. But if, if you can be a little more future-orientated, for me, if I can go, look, the goal is not necessarily to kill it on the first night. It's to be able to kill it by the last time. So this first night, I might learn how I need to communicate with the audience. I might learn what they get and they don't get. I might learn how I might need to adjust. Then that one moment, the pressure's taken off of it. I'm able to just take it for what it is. If it's great, it's great. If it's not great, it's not great. But I know what it's working towards. I know what is to come, what the true goal is. I think if you and I, through Christ, are able to do that with our lives, 
able to take the pressure off of, the expectations off of that marriage, that living situation, that workplace, that party, those experiences, that wealth, then we'd be able to just take it for what it is, enjoy what we've been given to enjoy, and yet remain steadfast and immovable, knowing that our work with the Lord is not in vain. So this morning I invite you to lean into the hope that we have in the resurrection of Jesus, and the resurrection promised to his people, that you and I might eat and drink and enjoy our toil, but we might do so knowing that because of the resurrection, it is not in vain.